Welcome to our discussion segment on A Thousand Wills. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Let's get started. Hello, John. How's it going? Very well. I loved this episode, and I also felt a great burden hearing it. Really? Yeah. Why is that? It's very heavy, as is almost all of the Russian history. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. uh, Which is one of my questions later on. All right. But I wanted to start out, you very well laid out the background information on what Russia was like under the czars. Mm -hmm. When you were talking about the last czar, was he and his family willfully ignorant of what was going on, or were they aware that the people were suffering and they just didn't care? There's a lot of debate on that question, because I think to modern eyes, it's kind of, well, how could you not know what's going on? But you've got to remember the size of Russia, the limits of technology that existed at the time, and the fact that a lot of monarchs at that point were very much unaware of what's going on. So I think Most historians, there are some revisionists who are re-examining it right now for better or worse, but I think most historians suggest that because Nicholas came to power at such a young age, and he hadn't really had a whole lot of training, his father Alexander III died fairly young, and Nicholas spent his early life basically going to parties and living the good life. Basically, he was a late 19th century frat boy. So he he had no interest in learning about Russia, about the government outside of St. Petersburg and outside of the imperial complex at Tsarskoye Silo. His whole life revolved around the luxury and the pageantry of the court without any of the responsibility that his father certainly had. Alexander III was quite the tyrant, but he understood the importance of good government. And he did it just with his ministers. He didn't have a Duma, a legislature, or anything like that. He ran the country with his ministers. But Nicholas didn't have his father's raw intelligence, from what I've read, and didn't really have his father's interest in good government. He simply wanted to party it up. So willingly ignorant, probably, to... to the I, I struggle with willingly because I think it never crossed his mind to think about his people. Now, once he gets into office and, and starts running the country, he does get better at it. But again, he's surrounded by sycophants, especially once Rasputin enters the court, which I hope we'll have a chance to maybe talk a little bit about him very briefly, even though he's not really a main character in this. Once Rasputin comes into the court, Rasputin and Nicholas's wife, Alexandra, ban anyone who disagrees, anyone who presents Nicholas with anything that might upset him, anything that counters his narrative of, I am the little father, my people love me, I am appointed by God, and everything is going fine. Just to give one example... It was either the day of the coronation or the day of their wedding. I think it was on the coronation. There was supposed to be this big party in St. Petersburg for for the people. And basically, there was a stampede. Not a full-on riot, but there was a stampede for people trying to get a whole bunch of food. And it ended up like 1,600 people died. It was bloody. It was awful. And Nicholas wanted to go out and and see the survivors and talk to them and, and show that he really cared. And Alexandra said, no, you can't do that. You'll appear weak. And so he and his wife continued to party, and the Russian people saw their dead fellow citizens, their dead family members, their dead friends, and then they see images in the press of the czar and his wife dancing in this beautifully appointed palace. The contrast couldn't be more stark of the rich live in luxury, and they don't care about us who are dying literally out on a field outside St. Petersburg. Who was Rasputin? And <laughs> he ever- was a character. I, yeah, so he, he's not only a character in history, but he's been a character in a lot of stories. Yes. So who was he really, and why does he matter? He was a Siberian monk who was kicked out of his village for committing a murder. 
He went on a pilgrimage. He walked, according to the story. We don't know if it's been proven or anything. He traveled, mostly on foot, from far eastern Siberia, probably about 2,000 miles to St. Petersburg. And he claimed to have seen God, and he had all kinds of religious experiences, becomes a monk. But he was not... <laughs> most Christians today would probably not consider Rasputin to be an actual... to be a, someone who you should emulate. First of all, we only emulate Christ, but in terms of religious leaders to follow in this life, he believed that he was the direct voice of God. He believed that every time he spoke, he was speaking for God. But he also, he believed that in order, or that since Christ came to save us from our sins and gives us grace, the more you sin, the closer you are to God because he's giving you more grace. So he told all of his followers, sin as much as is humanly possible. So he would host in the monastery where he made his home, his various homes, he would bring in just every, every sin of the flesh, hit each one of the seven deadly sins every single day. That's how you live your life as a good Christian. So he was quite an interesting character. He comes to St. Petersburg and gets involved with the royal family because Nicholas and Alexandra's son, Alexei, was a hemophiliac. He had acquired that disease because Alexandra's ancestors all had the gene that passes hemophilia through the line, going all the way back to before Queen Victoria. I mean, he was constantly near death. Rasputin supposedly could control that condition and brought Alexei back from the brink of death several times. Now, did he actually do it? We don't know. There could have been some kind of a psychosomatic situation where because Alexei believed that this guy was here, that his body just got better. We, we, have, we have no idea how that worked. But because he could control Alexei's hemophilia, Nicholas and Alexandra gave him whatever he wanted. And he ran, basically, not just the imperial court, but the country for a long period of time until his ultimate assassination. And how was he assassinated? <laughs> well... The story's different, and I might get some of the details wrong, but my understanding was he was poisoned, then they tried to shoot him, uh, but ultimately he was thrown into a river and drowned. He survived being poisoned, he survived being shot, and ultimately it was his drowning in, the ri in a river that ended his life. He was a tough guy to kill. In covering what Russia was like during this time, mm -hmm. you talked about it as a feudal system almost. Yes. Why? Why had Russia not progressed with almost every other part mm -hmm. of the world? Because you basically have to look at the first couple of czars after the Napoleonic era. So Alexander I, who is the czar who ultimately defeated Napoleon, he's the one who marched through Paris victoriously in 1814. His philosophy was, or his worldview was, I am the savior of Europe. I am supreme. And really, he was. His armies were the most powerful in Europe at that time. And he never he, he was focused outward. He's working with the Holy Alliance to try and suppress revolution everywhere else, and his people suffer. There's no, there's no sense of reform or anything like that. When he dies, his brother Nicholas comes to power, and Nicholas is a tyrant. I mean, just the most brutal ruler Russia had seen probably since Ivan the Terrible. Suppresses his own people, turns the military against anyone who dares look for reform, creates Russia's first full secret police organization. Russia is, is languishing in, in a feudal system at that point. Then you get to Alexander II, who is the great reformer. He's the czar during the Crimean War. Russia's loss during that war convinces him that the country needs to modernize. Russia needs modern infrastructure. They need uh, railroads. They need factories, things like that, to bring Russia into the 19th century. Because of these reforms, he starts to open Russian society up a bit. And a whole bunch of new groups with new ideas come in. One of those groups was called the Pan-Slavs. And we don't need to get into what they believed. But bottom line is they assassinated Alexander II. 
When Alexander III, Nicholas II's father, the last czar, when his dad comes in, he says, okay, I watched my father die brutally. He was killed in a bombing and his body was literally shredded. He survived the blast and lingered for a couple days in just unimaginable pain. Alexander III says, no more of this. And he clamps down on even the most basic of freedoms that the Russians have. So you've got this back and forth between the tyranny of Nicholas I to the liberal reforms of Alexander II and then back to the tyranny of Alexander III. In every case, tyranny cases, basically they're saying we don't want anything in Russia to change. This is old-style conservatism. What has existed in Russia from time immemorial will be conserved. We are going to preserve this. While the rest of the world is, is modernizing and all that, we don't need that because we hold on to what has always been. That's interesting. I, I think that there's this perception that Russia stopped advancing under communist rule, but it sounds like it had been that way for a long time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Russia did advance under communist rule, just in not great way. I mean, their military was right. completely transformed by World yeah. War II and all of that. There is a show on Netflix called Chef's Table. They highlight chefs all over the world that are specific to their culture and how they've retooled cuisine. Like um, classic cuisine yeah, into modern yeah. ways. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting, but one of the most interesting episodes is in Moscow. There's a chef there who, knowing that most of the food that was being prepared and served came from the communist mm -hmm. time. So he wanted to go back before then. Hmm. And so he's preparing all of these things and he's having to talk to people who are in their 90s, who are 100, oh, yeah. finding these old books on how to cook moose snout and other things. <laughs> but it, it's, it's interesting to me because when they cover France and Italy... Countries well known for their cuisine. Well, yeah, but also not under the oppression. Mm -hmm. You see the food evolve with the culture. Oh, yeah. And Russia never did. He's having to research food that was prepared in the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s. I mean, it, just, it goes back that far. Mm -hmm. There's nothing modernized. And so he's having to revisit all of that and start to help it evolve because yeah. he never did. And so that struck me. And what was interesting about your podcast is, is like that realization. It wasn't just the Soviet Union that you know, suppressed a lot of evolving of culture. It was also well before that. It was oh, just yes. like constant suppression, constant murder, constant mm. corruption. So anyways, why did it take so long for a revolution? Going back to your comment earlier, it sounded like obviously people were being oppressed for a very long time. Yes. And that, I assume, is one of the reasons why when the communists came in, there was an acceptance. There was like, this is going to change things mm -hmm. for the better. Why did that take so long? Because the Russian government and the Russian secret police was very effective at suppressing earlier revolutions. It wasn't until the trauma of the First World War that we get a truly mass movement in Russia. The earlier revolutions, you go back to the Decemberist Revolt, I think, in 1823, to the attempts by the Pan-Slavs to kind of revolutionize particularly far Western Russia, what is today like White Russia and the Ukraine and places like that the government is able to suppress them because they were largely localized, whereas World War I touched every single Russian because so many millions of Russians are on the fighting fronts against Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire. Every family is now seeing the uncaring attitude that the Tsar, whether or not he actually cared about his people, was immaterial to them. They perceived him as being, sure, this little father, but not someone who ever cared about them. And so they reach out just like people from all over the world in times of crisis, in times of truly desperate situations and desperate fear, desperate privation. They will turn to anyone who offers them hope. And Lenin and the Bolsheviks did that. So on that topic, in terms of 
the people embracing Lenin and the communist agenda, it sounded like from your podcast, there was a lot of support for the whites from all over the world to say, we yes, need to stop absolutely. this communist red wave. Mm-hmm. Why was that ineffective? Because ultimately, an oppressed people will outlast their oppressors, no matter how much time and energy and money and soldiers and materiel is given to their oppressors, the people will triumph. I mean, it's just like Vietnam. On paper, the United States and the South Vietnamese should have absolutely won the Vietnam War, and yet we lost. Same thing happened with the whites during the Russian Civil War. They had all the infrastructure, they had all the support, as you said, and yet they were not able to triumph because the Russian people who were supporting the Reds just said, we're not going to quit, we're not going to give up. Now, you also have the intense war weariness of specifically the allied world, where we've just been through the worst war in human history at this point, That war ends in 1918. Then the intervention begins. I'm sorry, you're telling us we're going to spend more money and more lives dealing with this situation in faraway Russia. America is sending troops literally to the other side of the planet to intervene in Vladivostok and other parts in Siberia. Why? It's not our problem. Now, hindsight being what it is, maybe the West should have t- spent more time trying to crush this, but they didn't. And was- it, was, it was awkward for Winston Churchill when he fir- the first time he met Stalin— There was kind of a brief, kind of joking, but kind of serious remark because Stalin knew that Churchill was the loudest voice supporting the intervention and trying to crush the Bolsheviks early on. And a reporter asked Churchill, with Stalin standing right next to him, do you think that Comrade Stalin has forgiven you? And Churchill turns to him and he says, in proportion to the tanks that I send him. So you get this marriage of convenience (laughs) here. Yeah, I'm sure. Was there little to no understanding of the ideology that was communism at the time. It was great understanding, especially in the West, because we have free press. And so we're reading Lenin's writings. We're reading the immediate tasks of the Soviet government, We meaning Westerners. Yeah, yeah. So was there a lack of understanding in in, in its application then? Because to your question, or to your statement, well, uh, your statement about people that are oppressed will do whatever it takes to end that oppression. Were they unaware that communism was just as oppressive as... You mean, were the Russian people unaware? Yeah. That's a good question. I don't know, because on paper, everything Lenin said he was going to do, he did. He spelled it out, just like Hitler in Nazi Germany. But in speeches and in the propaganda, the Russians, the Bolsheviks were very, very good at propaganda, and they were able to couch this in terms of kind of what do you have to lose in supporting us? We are offering you a better life. Yes, there's going to be some sacrifice. Yes, there's going to be harsh times. But the end of history that's coming, it's just over the horizon. It's so close. We just need a little bit more sacrifice, a little bit more hardship, and then we will reach the end of history. That message resonated with the Russian people because of what they had suffered under the Tsar. And it's interesting that that generation, as they died out, and as the World War II generation that then witnessed the trauma of that war dies out, that's when you start to get the disaffection with communism in the 1970s and the 1980s, because they hadn't endured the suffering of yeah. that period. And so they, they want a better life. They see people with blue jeans, and they're like, I want a pair of those. Yeah. Russian clothes were made out of burlap. Can you imagine wearing potato sacks for clothing? Yeah. I actually had an, an econ prof in college who spent two summers over there uh, in... In the Soviet Union. Yeah, uh, Moscow. But he said, you know, having to wait in line to get a pair of underwear for two hours. Yeah. He said the worst experience was like watching these families with babies, like waiting in line for the same same kind of mm-hmm. pair of underwear. So he finally got a pair of underwear and he was walking out and he was trying out the elastic band and it broke. <laughs> Man. So, Yeah. 
on the topic of, of what Lennon tried at the onset, it was interesting to me in the podcast, you talk about how he realized that absolute communism was not working. Yeah. And so he started to integrate, I don't want to call it capitalism, but- cap- Free markets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, he started- He creates a mixed economy. Right. So he slowly started to do that, then backed off of it a bit, and then tried it again. At that point, I should back up a bit. Was Lenin a true believer in the power of communism? Yes. Or did he see it as a vehicle by which he could take power? No, no, he was a true believer. So Stalin, uh, there's debate on how ideological Stalin was. For Stalin, it's about personal power. But Lenin was absolutely a true believer. So as he applied the ideology and realized that it wasn't working... And he realized, I need to integrate some elements of capitalism in this. Is there any writings or anything that says he started to question that ideology at all? Or No. Okay. No, so he, he never, no. So he never, even though he was applying it, it wasn't working. He never backed off of the idea that no, it was... No, because tr- communism is brought into a country in stages. You have stage one, which is revolution. That's the overthrow. And Marx was very clear in Capital and, and in the Communist Manifesto of how that goes. Then there is consolidation, and that's going to be country by country, how you consolidate power to bring about the complete victory of the proletariat and the complete victory of the Communist Party. Marx gives some guidelines, but he doesn't go into detail on exactly how you do that. And then you reach the end of history, where the party, having destroyed the bourgeoisie, or not destroyed, reshaped human psychology and and the human heart and mind to accept communism, then the party lays down its power, and we have a classless society. He talks a lot about that. But that intermediate stage, which is the as far as any communist or socialist or collective whatever-ist term you want to apply to it, that's as far as any of them have gotten. We've never seen a society where communist dictators voluntarily give up their power. Lenin understood that during that period, maybe we have to accept some free market ideas, some, his word, capitalist ideas, but it's all in pursuit of eventually getting to the end of history. That feeds in well to your turning points section of the podcast, that Real socialism hasn't been tried. Do people say that or make that statement because that third phase has never been realized? The third phase where there's no power or everybody's in in this commune. Is that the reason? Or do you believe that it's because people who may not understand history say, well, there should be no capitalism? Not being a socialist, I can't speak to exactly, you know, with authority on exactly what they think. But from listening to people, reading their writings, hearing them on Pontificate on Twitter and, and in the news... It seems like most of their complaints are that second phase, that intermediate phase of consolidation hasn't found the right mix of pure socialism and pure free markets. That if we just find the right formula there, whereby we can control as much of the means of production as is humanly possible and still give people the illusion of control of their own lives, if we can just find that proper formula, then we can get to the end of history. And since we haven't found that formula, real socialism has never been tried. Okay, that's helpful. The testimonials that you included Mm -hmm. in the podcast, I don't think I have a word to say how sobering they were to both read and hear. And these are not people who are trying to politicize something they're stating as... Well, the trials were political. Right. I'm saying that the people that were, their lives were ruined. Yes. They they were just telling, here's what happened. Yeah, they were given a voice because the tragedies of their lives helped Stalin discredit his opponents. So their use was political. But despite that, we get a sense of what life was like truly in the Soviet Union. Right. So from Lenin to Stalin, and after that, I guess, was there ever a question like, how many lives are we going to destroy in order to make the future lives that much better? 
And was there ever a consideration based on what you've read and heard mm-hmm. and and all of that, based on everything that you've learned about this time period, was there ever a second guess to say, is the outcome that we believe will happen worth what is actually happening now? No. There's a popular quote that you find online that Joseph Stalin said, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. He probably never said that, but those words reflect the ideology, not just of Stalin, but of all of the Russian communists. Bolshevik, Menshevik, didn't matter. They believed that any sacrifice was worth making in order to achieve the end of history. Because as we've talked, it's kind of been a rolling theme the last few weeks. When your ideology is at the center, you will not accept any, or you're, you're not either willing or able to accept genuine critiques of that ideology in terms of how you pursue it, how you reach it. For them, just like for the French revolutionaries, as we talked about a while ago, the outcome is what matters. How you get there, if the, the number of lives you have to trample over, or the number of freedoms you have to trample, the number of lives you have to destroy... That's immaterial because the end is what matters. The ends justify the means. So no matter how much blood is spilled, it's worth this conceptual yes, end. Yes, okay. absolutely. One would think that when you look objectively at history and you read these different applications of a specific ideology, mm-hmm. that you would say, this doesn't work. Not only does it not work, but it is the opposite of what we would consider or quality of life, like life in general. Mm -hmm. It is the exact opposite of it. Because not not, not only does it kill, but it suppresses the will of each person. It's intended to suppress them entirely. So the life while they're alive until death, which will probably happen in the same way. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, why is it still a topic of discussion? Why is it still, in your opinion, on everything that you've read, which Mm -hmm. is a lot? Yeah. Why does it still exist? Because their ideology is what matters. They're going to try to reach that ideology, and we just haven't found the right formula yet. It goes back to abstract ideas over concrete reality. Whether you are talking about Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, or you're talking about Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez here in the United States, their goal is what matters. Now, I will say... I don't believe, I don't know, but I don't believe that specifically Americans, because we're recording here in the United States, I don't think that American socialists, democratic socialists, are prepared to use the same kind of means that Stalin and Mao and Castro and Chavez and all these other communist dictators of the past used to achieve their end. But the fact that they are unwilling to allow any facts of history, any sense of... Any sense of, I mean, really, any sense of logic to say that this has never worked. We've had dozens of countries try it in various combinations of freedom and control. The fact they won't allow that logic means that they are so concerned, so consumed with their ideology that it worries me that if they ever get real power, what would they try? And again, I'm not saying that Bernie Sanders is going to establish concentration camps or gulags or anything like that, but... The ideology he supports at its most basic level says, your freedom, Joe Parker, my freedom, John Streeter, is immaterial compared to the ultimate good of the state and the reaching of the end of history. And that is a dangerous ideology. Say what you want about the traditional left and the traditional right in this country. Both of them have said, we have different, different ways of pursuing our policies and, and different goals for this country. But in both cases, we believe in the fundamental principles of this country, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. These democratic socialists don't believe in that. 
they believe in control. And the only way to get it is for them to offer to us, the American people, we will give you so much wonderful stuff. And all we ask in return is that you give up your freedom. Your statement in the podcast about the ability for the Soviet Union to create food Hmm. was mind-blowing. I had never heard that. You said to cite just one statistic among many when it comes to the Soviet economic output from the years 1922 to 1991, the USSR was able to produce enough food to feed its population for one year. This despite the fact that the agricultural lands within the Soviet borders was capable of growing enough food to feed all of humanity for each of those 69 years. We've talked about ideology Mm -hmm. broadly. When we think about the economics of said ideology, what historically works and what doesn't work? And I want to be fair here, just just to balance it out, both broad ideology and the economic part of it, is capitalism any better? (laughs) So it depends what you want on what your outcome is. In my economics class, I make it very clear to the students, or I try to, that you can have whatever kind of economic system you want. I don't teach economics from a partisan position or from a capitalist or a Marxist position or, any, or anything in between. You can have whatever system you want. You have to, one, be honest about what your goals are. Is your goal equality of opportunity, where everyone can pursue their own dreams and their hopes and their aspirations, some will go farther than others, or you can have equality of outcome, where no matter how hard you work, if you achieve too much, if you earn too much in an economic sense, whether that's time, talent, treasure, whatever it is, we're going to take some of it from you if you make too much and give it to people who don't get as far. So you need to, one, be honest about what your goal is. If your goal is equality of outcome, democratic socialism is a good system. If your goal is equality of opportunity, that's not a great system. And if you're trying to implement equality of outcomes while living in a country where a majority of people believe in equality of opportunity, you have to twist the language and you have to deceive people. Oh, yeah, we want we want everyone to have opportunities and go as far. We just kind of need to guide some of the resources towards the poor. You need to be honest about what you're trying to achieve. And second, you can't have everything. You cannot have equal outcomes where everyone gets even a bare subsistence level of economic output, food, money, clothing, etc., and allow complete freedom of action when it comes to where you want to spend your money and how you want to pursue your own economic goals. You can't have everything in any kind of society. Now, on an individual level, we all know this. I can't go to a store and buy a gallon of milk and have my $3 and the gallon of milk, unless I do what? Unless I steal it. I get one or I get the other. If I want the milk, I buy it. If I want the $3, I keep it and I don't buy it. When it comes to maximizing economic output, it's the exact same thing. I make whatever decisions that I feel are best for me. You make whatever decisions you feel are best for you in an economic standpoint, not not bringing morality or politics or anything into this, just on a basic level with the resources I have at my disposal, my time, my talent, and my treasure. I do what is best for me and for my family. You do what is best for you and your family. In a society where that is maximized, consistent with good order and liberty and something like that, I can't steal from you or anything like that, historically, it has been proven that those societies tend to achieve greater equality of opportunity and, interestingly enough, greater equality of outcome than societies which say, I know best, Joe Parker, how to run your life for you. Economically, communism is based on one simple idea, that a small group of people know how to run an entire economy. 
qualifications, how they get that position, that's immaterial. That's the political side of communism, of socialism. Collective ideology says, I know what's best for you. Now, again, on a personal level, this makes no sense. I can't know how much food you and Sarah and your two kids consume over the course of a single day, let alone how much you consume in a year or in 10 years or over the course of your life. But collective ideology says that since I'm the food czar, I get to decide how much you need. Now, maybe I'm really good at guessing and I provide you with everything you need, but you might have extra stuff left over. I might give you too much milk. What do you do with the excess? Well, you can't sell it. Sorry, you're not allowed to. So it goes to waste. Or I give you too little. You, making decisions with the money in your wallet, you know how to maximize the efficient use of your resources when it comes to milk. How can any group of people, not insulting the intelligence of socialist bureaucrats and planners, but how can any group of people, no matter how smart, know how best to distribute all the vast resources that we 330 million Americans want to use in a given day, in a given week, month, year, decade, century, whatever. It's not possible. They will give some of us too much. They will give some of us too little. There will be surpluses in some areas. There will be shortages in other areas. Now, on the flip side, do free markets lead to some people not having enough? Yes, it does. Do we need to have a basic welfare net to take care of them? That's a political question. But if you asked purely on economics, which one provides more food, more clothing, more, more economic goods, it's a free market. Should the markets be regulated? Should there be a safety net? All of that is political. But when it comes to economics, you can have whatever system you want, but you need to, one, be honest about what you're pursuing, and two, you need to understand that you can't have everything. You can either have maximized efficiency or planned economies. You can't have both. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of A Thousand Wills. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. Thank you, and see you all next week.